Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Dimitri Themelis. Dimitri is the co-founder and CEO at Knock the leading performance management platform and CRM for multifamily property owners and managers. In his eight years at Knock, Dimitri has led the company to win three startup competitions and successfully raised $50 million in funding, all while developing meaningful friendships along the way. Prior to co-founding Knock, he worked in equity sales at UBS. He is an avid skier and outdoorsman and has competed in numerous competitions, including the U.S. Free Skiing Open. Dimitri is a proud member of the Seattle Greek American community and serves on the parish council of St. Demetrios Greek Orthodox Church. On weekends, he adventures around town with his wife, Heather, and dog, Uzo. Welcome, Dimitri. So good to see you. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Shauna. Good to be here. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. You ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. I, I know that you're Greek, and I actually have my 20-year wedding anniversary this year, and I want to go to Greece, so I'm curious. If I get one visit, where am I going? Where is it like, or is there a hidden gem in Greece? Yeah. Okay. Good. Great question. So 99% of people visit Greece and they do the Acropolis and then they go to visit Mykonos and Santorini. And so there's like this very beaten path. Um, My recommendation is like, go check the box, see the, see the Parthenon, see, see Athens for a day. And then like, if you have to go to Santorini or you have to go to Mykonos, then go there, but spend like a day and then take the bulk of your trip and go to any one of the neighboring islands like Naxos or Milos, because you're going to have, you know, the same sunsets, the same, you know, just as good, if not better beaches. And you're going to totally get like a totally different experience culturally. Um, So I always recommend people like if, if they must go to, go to Santorini for a night, check that box. But then, um, just pop over to any of the, any of the other neighboring islands for like a more authentic <laughs> Greek experience. I'm sorry, that's my dog. Uh, what's your dog's name? His name's Uzo. So speaking of Greek beverages. Oh, Uzo. Uzo. Yum. Okay. Where's your bucket list ski vacation? I know you're a big skier. Ooh, um, probably like the, the French Alps or, or something like that. Like skiing in, in Europe would be pretty cool. Yeah. And given that you work in equities, what's, what stocks are you currently following or most excited about? Or are you even in the stock market? I'm so not in the stock market. It's not even funny. And I remember <laughs> when I used to do sales trading with UBS, like that was my job, right? Was to recommend stocks. And I remember talking with a lot of like high net worth, like entrepreneurs and people who'd built really amazing businesses and were, and were UBS clients. And it was shocking to me, like how little they knew about stocks that they had, you know, pretty significant holdings. And and I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, I can't imagine ever being at a place where I have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in, in something. And I, and I know, you know, very little about it. Um, 
and now sort of many years out of the world of finance and many years into entrepreneurship, you realize that it kind of takes tunnel vision in order to build a business. And so uh, if I had any money to invest, I would certainly, you know, trust a financial advisor to tell me what to do, but I would be just like the client that I used to shake my head at. That's so funny. Okay. So are there leaders that you look up to or like who would be the leader that you most admire? Ooh, uh, just like first one that comes to head is Elon. Just like yeah. a beast. Um, I like he how he's a, a challenger. I like how he sort of, you know, marches to the beat of his own drum and pisses people yeah. off, but you know, it doesn't cross the <laughs> line or anything. So, yeah. yeah. And if there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Uh, I don't know. F- figuring it out. And it'd probably be a, <laughs> a comedy. If you could have a superpower, which one would you choose? Superpower? I would definitely go flying. You've got to be flying. Right? To just be like, okay, I'm just going to show up somewhere. Like the feeling of flying or the feeling of being able to arrive like on a beach in Greece out of the middle of nowhere? It's like flying kind of like gets you everything else, right? Like get ready to go. I'd want to go fast. Like I, that, that yeah. would be cool. Yeah. Well, you're a thrill seeker. You're the skier, like racer. Like, of course you're wanting speed. Tell me, how did, where did you learn how to ski? Did you grow you grew up in Seattle or this area? Yeah. Skiing was a big part of my life. Grew up, um, like just going up to local hills here or taking, we took a lot of, we took a lot of trips to Sun River and Bend growing up. So always liked skiing growing up and I was really into like jumping. And so I got Mm. really into freestyle skiing and it was really cool. Like when I was like in my teens, um, like that whole category, like freestyle skiing was really evolving super quickly. So I was really Mm. fortunate to be, um, you know, participating in a sport that was kind of having its own cultural revolution at the same time. And like, that was a big part of my life for a long time. And ultimately, you know, competed at the U S open and some other events like like that. Um, so yeah, it was a really fun part of my life, but now I'm, that's incredible. You know, not as good, Were you as good at school. Was. was, was school your thing? Were you a good student? I was good at, yeah, I was good at school. I had like, like the Greek mom guilt, like you had to, um, you know, had to have good grades. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to have like have disappointed my, my mom or my dad or my aunts yeah. and uncles. And so, uh, <laughs> I felt like there was plenty of motivation to want to do good in school. Yeah. It was a definitely like, would, were you clear on kind of what your family values were and education was one of them? Yeah, it wasn't like, I mean, I think, yeah, I think education is definitely like a family value. Um, both my parents were fortunate to go to school. I mean, they came from immigrant families where like that wasn't a thing. And so, you know, there was a lot of pride um, in that like my parents and aunts and uncles had gone to, you know, had gone to college. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up, it was always like, I remember even in elementary school, it's like, you're going to college. Uh, so that was, um, there was always like that, like, that's the finish line. Like you have to have to get at least there until then job's not done. Right. And how did you decide, how did you pick UW? Was that just a given, like you're going to stay in state or, um, who was kind of guiding you through that whole process? I'm asking through the perspective of like, I've got a junior in high school and I'm like, right. You know, what role do the parents play? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. So I always wanted to go to Colorado, University of Colorado. That was like the school in my head as like a kid. I just, like, it just made sense to me. Like it was in this town Boulder, called Boulder. Boulder. Yeah. yeah. Like it was in this town called Boulder in the mountains and like their mascot was a Buffalo and you could go skiing all the time. Like that sounded, that sounded like kind of like just spoke to me. 
Uh, and then I, I applied and got accepted. And then I was looking at the out-of-state tuition. It was like $30,000 a year then uh, versus I was I was fortunate enough to get accepted at the University of Washington. And I was paying my own way for school. So it was like $6,000 you know, annual tuition back in 2005 versus right. 30000 And um, like the decision was sort of made for me. But uh, right. yeah, that's kind of how I ended up at University of Washington. It wasn't my first first choice, but uh, economically, like it, it yeah, made a such lot a big sense. school. And what did you ended up studying? I know finance and international business. Was that just kind of a default, or did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Ooh, I always wanted to be a doctor. Like I, my mom's Ooh. a nurse, and I had a lot of like family in the medical profession, and so I was like, you know, watched ER, wanted to be a doctor, <laughs> but uh, took my first chem class and hated it and sucked at it. But I also took an econ class and kind of liked that and was pretty good at it. So um, just started doing more of what was working and taking those kind of business oriented classes and enjoying it. And that's kind of how I, I um, you know, ended up with a business degree. Yeah. Well, so I'm meeting you now, obviously, as entrepreneur, um, founder, CEO, of tech company, but you had a stint in New York working in finance. Um, you know, from, I mean, I went to UW, I don't remember people recruiting from New York from equity sales trading positions out of UW. Like, how did that come to be? How did you even know that that was a position to pursue? Yeah. Um, well, when I was graduating, like I graduated right in June of 2008, um, Bear Stearns had already collapsed. Like Lehman Brothers was, you know, on the, on the horizon. So the financial crisis was totally unfolding. Um, and I, I was just very fortunate, like, to to land a job in the first place and the the manager that had hired me um he was really you know he was really committed to like having someone young in his office like a a younger analyst in the office so um just was very fortunate to begin with that I got a job and actually my my the the office that I worked at right when I graduated was in Sacramento um, mm. which was, it was funny. It's like close to a mall. I don't know if you're familiar with Sacramento art and fair mall, but like we used to have to tell customers like take a ride at Hooters and park next to Chuck E. Cheese. And like, that's, you know, that was like where the office was like in an, in a suburban office park. But how did you get the job to begin with? Like how did, did you apply online or like 2008? What a crazy time to be looking for a job. Yeah. Um, I had been applying to lots of jobs and, um, not landing any of them. And I had a friend who, a, a, someone from the Greek community here locally, Dina Karkonen, she's fantastic. Uh, she, uh, I, I had coffee with her and she told me about this, this program for graduates, like a graduate training program. And so I was super interested in, in it and uh, found out right away that the, that the program was already full. Like they had already done all their hiring back in December. And this was like the spring. Mm. And so um, as more and more jobs like kind of evaporated as the like financial world was kind of grinding to a halt and opportunities were, were being, you know, doors were shutting left and right. I reached back out to her and I thought, well, maybe it's just not in the cards for me to land like a, a big boy job this year, but, uh, I want to be the first in line for next year. So if I have to invest the next 11 months, like getting to know the, the manager's, doing like the networking stuff, like at least I can put myself at the front of the line for say a year from now. And so, um, I kind of reached back out and said, Hey, like, 
you know, doors are closing. I'd like an opportunity to just, you know, network over the next 12 months. Let's kick off that process. And um, it was just coincidence that the, as I mentioned, there was a manager who really was passionate about like wanting someone young in, in their office. Um, someone had dropped out of the program and that manager was like adamant about refilling the position. So they did this kind of crazy lightning round of hiring for that one open spot and I was able to get it. Um, so it was kind of like a weird oh, awesome. snuck in the back door and then just held on for but dear it's a life story for a couple of, years. It's a, it's a really a story of grit and perseverance because a lot of people are just like, eh, I guess I didn't get that job. Like, you know, that's amazing. Yeah. I love those. I love just hearing kind of like the sliding doors of like, if that hadn't happened. And so that took you from Sacramento to New York. And yes, started in Sacramento, yeah. moved out to New York. We were doing like, um, product rotation. So learning about different financial products. So I moved out there to work on alternative investments. And I know you've done work in that space and in the financial world before. So um, was kind of working with um, like our hedge funds platforms and everything. And yeah, it was an awesome learning experience. And and then I just was able, you know, fortunate enough to be able to hold on to a, a job as there were a lot of, you know, a lot of change and restructuring and um, yeah, ended up you know ended up staying with UBS for five years and kind of saw, you know, r- rode out the storm, so to speak. Um, and that's kind of, I'd say, characterizes the time there is riding out the storm. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about that. There is like, if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. It was great training, even if you didn't end up pursuing and sticking with finance. But what an incredible pivot! Like, how did you end up? Tell me the story of. Knock. Did that come straight out of UBS? Yeah, right after UBS. So Tom Petrie, the other co-founder, he and I had been classmates at UW. Were say, you know, friendly acquaintances. We both got hired at UBS together. So when we um, on day one orientation, there was like a list of all the new analysts and what school they went to. And so our names were next to each other. You know, out like sorted by alma mater and. Uh, we became really fast friends and you know and roommates and and kind of went through a lot of training together, and so mm. we just always talked about entrepreneurship and like that was a time right like Uber came out then like the iPhone had just come out like our senior year, um, and there was like all of these you know all of these chain like technology really kind of came into itself once you know there was like a an iPhone in, in everybody's pocket, um, and I remember you know all kinds of cool services coming to market um, around that time and Tom, Tom too. And so we were just always, I don't know, talking about different ideas and that was sort of a, a constant theme of conversation for us. And so we knew we wanted to do something entrepreneurial and then, um, you know, it just kind of worked out that we were both willing to give it a shot um, in 2000, you know, we quit our jobs in 2013 and uh, I mean, there's more to the story, but yeah, it just kind of, you know, spawned out of a friendship and sort of a passion for trying something out. Yeah. And so what was the original idea for Knock and how did you come up with the name? Um, oof, well, the, I love the, the initial, name, by the yeah. way. I'm like, I love the name. The initial idea was actually not Knock. We were going to do something in benefits. Um, like we thought, man, as a as an employee of a big company, I've got all these big benefits. Or, um, you know, I've got my healthcare, my dental, vision, commuter, wellness, whatever. And we thought, um, Tom had done some consulting work and benefits and he's like, dude, pe- pe- people are terrible consumers of their benefits. We we could make like a really cool like benefits education and utilization app and like drive, drive wellness and better healthcare outcomes and 
better data. And it was really cool. Like we actually, we, we spent. It's a, and it's a hundred percent true. <laughs> it's totally true. It's like a huge pain point and we really liked it, but like all of the, um, all of the really cool stuff that we wanted to do with it. Like we really would have needed amazing data from out of insurance companies. And like it, that was kind of clear that we weren't going to be able to get really great data out of insurance companies in order to, to help make consumers better or customers like better consumers. And um, maybe that's by design. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> so we like, but we had a lot of companies tell us like, well, we'll buy like these little, like imagine like your healthcare card or your vision card or your commuter benefit. It's like your plan information on like an app, right. And kind of a white labeled app with your plan information. People were like, well, we'd buy that. And it was like, I don't know. It was a little disheartening to kind of know, like, you're like, wow, if we're going to commit, you know, 10 years of our life or something to this, like building a business, like we'd much, we'd like to do something that we're really passionate about, like the whole thing, not just, not just that, like we have something that could be sold. Um, and so around that time, like we, we were talking about all kinds of different ideas, sort of over lunch conversations. And the idea that became Knox spawned from a man, you know, apartment hunting sucks. Like I'm helping somebody move. And, um, it was, you know, like the, the, everybody who's rented kind of knows the the customer journey. It's pretty universal. It's pretty objective. We thought like, it's, it's really missing a lot of the hallmarks of a great modern customer experience. And so, uh, just kind of picking at the pain point of like looking for a new apartment sucks was sort of how, you know, how the conversation started. Um, and then if you want, I'll tell you the, the name, the name story, but cause that's kind of, I funny. need to know. Yeah. Okay. So the, the initial idea was zip digs and, uh, for the project. So Z I P D I G S. And we thought, okay, it's phonetic. The domain's available. It's easy enough to spell, but it's like a pretty crappy name. Um, and sure enough, like as soon as we incorporated as or change, changed our name to zip digs, like some news, like it got picked up in some news feed, like GeekWire wrote, like wrote an article about it. And next thing we know, we got a, an email from a company in California called Zip Realty, you know, threatening to sue us to change our name because, you know, they owned everything zip related uh, in, mm. in, in, in real estate technology. So they gave us like six months and, you know, they paid us like 5,000 bucks to change the name. Um, which was funny because that's actually was our very first revenue as a company. It was like a trademark. Yeah, you're like, thanks comment. for the money yeah. though. It's like, we'll ooh, we're, it. uh, we're officially a revenue company. Congratulations. Yeah, look at us. We're profitable. <laughs> yeah. So we had we had like some time to change the name. And it's funny because we actually had like, we you know, it's, it's one of those things like naming seems easy until you're actually like under the gun to, ch you know, to change your name and you've got a deadline totally. looming. And, you know, it's, I don't know, is it a, is it a big deal? Not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, you want something great. And uh, I was dating a girl in Detroit who was from Detroit at the time, terrible relationship. Um, but, um, and I'm happily married now, but uh, anyways, she, to someone else. Yeah. yeah to someone else. Uh, and it was a d disaster of a, of, of a relationship, but she was, you know, telling me one night at work, she's like, I'm going to come up with the name and was sending me just like a stream of texts of names. And they were all pretty bad. But then out of like in the middle of the stream, just knock popped up. And I was like, holy crap, like that's, that's amazing. And it's available. It's just such a good name. It so really is. That's how we got knocked. So bad relationship. Well, you got something got good something out of the out relationship. Of totally. Yeah. Something, something to walk away from. And so 
what was the original business model and business idea and what is it now? Yeah. So initially we just wanted to be open table for apartments. Like we thought um, both from a customer's, like a renter's perspective, as well as like a property manager's perspective, like online scheduling was like the starting, you know, the, the thing that we wanted to solve first. Like I can make, you know, an Uber appointment online, or I can make a restaurant reservation online or a fitness class or a doctor's appointment online. But to, you know, to, to go on Zillow or to go on to, um, you know, apartments.com and to see, or Craigslist, you can see inventory, but like to actually convert your interest into an appointment, you were sort of taken from the digital environment and have to make phone calls or emails and, and go do that back and forth communication dance in order to just to get two people to the same place at the same time. And mm-hmm. so online scheduling was super obviously missing to us and no one was doing it at the time. So we started with scheduling. Um, and so the initial value prop was like convert search traffic to foot traffic 24 seven. And that's a pretty like compelling value prop. And like, obviously businesses in just about every vertical have adopted online scheduling to turn like a, an interested customer into like a physical appointment. Um, but what was interesting was that we found that that value prop made sense, but in, for this particular customer, um, like if you're looking for a new apartment, it's not just scheduling the appointment. Like a lot of times there's questions beforehand. What's your pet policy? What's the security deposit? How close are you to a school or a bus stop or whatever? And, um, then of course, after the appointment, there's a lot of, you know, similar questions or can I come back with my, you know, my partner or whatever. And, um, so we were doing a really good job of helping connect people for the appointments, but we weren't like, they were still doing all that other communication in in their like disorganized outlook inboxes and on their, you know, their phone systems and voicemails, et cetera. And so, um, you know, our customers were telling us like, okay, you guys have kind of nailed this scheduling piece, but like our lives are still a total mess because we're having to jump back and forth between all these different communication protocols, you know, phone calls, emails, texts, and, and keeping track of all this stuff is just, it's, it's, if anything, like you've made it worse because now we're now, now we're logging into one more platform just to see our online appointments. And so, um, again, just trying to like figure it out and hold on. We, we kind of added more communication capabilities alongside the calendar until, you know, at one point, you could not only book appointments, but you could bi-directional phone calls, emails, texts, and chats, and social media messages, like all piped into one sort of omni-channel communications dashboard. And that's finally when I think we found product market fit, where customers were like, okay, like, I don't have to leave this anymore to do my job. Like, all of, all awesome. of, my, all of my communications can stay here. And that's when I think, you know, we finally established some product market fit as a business. <laughs> And how were you funding it at the time, aside from your five thousand dollars from from Zip? yeah from, from a, that probably that we might have might be like an NDA for that, but I think we're okay. <laughs> we'll we'll take the risk and keep that in the yeah. show. Um, <laughs> we had uh, raised like our first million and a half dollars of seed funding, which happened in multi you know in three di- over three different rounds, was all um, kind of. In, you know, individuals and angels and some customers to 
Um, and that lasted us for, you know, the first, again, it was kind of over a couple of different rounds, but um, we didn't end up raising our first institutional round until much later, like until 2019. And that was when we, we, we started working with Madrona here in Seattle. Um, so that, that, that was how we funded ourselves to just kind of seed, seed yeah. financing. Seed financing through like mm-hmm. angels and various. Yep. And what, what was the business model as far as how you made money? We were pre-revenue for a number of our early, you know, early financings. Um, but the way you make money, you know, it's building technology for multifamily operators and people who property management companies is uh, you know, typically they think of they think of revenue like an, if you think of an apartment building as a business they're thinking of their revenue on a per unit per month basis. So Mm -hmm. like, what are my average rents in my property? And that's how they're conceptualizing revenues. So they want to normalize costs the same way. So if you're going to propose a service or a technology to, you know, a a real estate business, they want to know what's the cost per unit per month, right? Because that's how they're, they're kind of normalizing pricing. And they're mm-hmm. thinking about their budget. Like I have X amount of dollars per unit per month to spend on marketing or operations, et cetera. And so um, like our business model is a subscription model where we charge, you know, a, a, a price per month, per unit per month to our customers. And so um, like if you have a 150 unit property, you know, it's less, you know, the subscription costs less than if you have a 300 unit property because there's more units paying, you know, X amount of dollars per month. So it's not about the results of what happens through the service. It's just that you have these. Oh, sorry. I mean, it's, it's definitely about the results and like the way that we're like the value that we're providing to our customers is tremendous. Like we're, so our core products is CRM. So, you know, for most businesses, like your CRM system is sort of the crown jewel of your, you know, your front office technology stack. Uh, and so we're like the full on scheduling and communications and analytics platform for how our customers are engaging with renters throughout mm-hmm. the entire customer life cycle. So um, housing all of that data and engagement for between property manager and renter um, throughout that whole life cycle is sort of the value that we're providing to our customer. Um, and the result of, of it all, it's it's like most businesses, like why do you invest in a CRM? Well, because an organized and engaged sales team, you know, performs better than a disorganized and disengaged sales team. Right. And so for, for a typical not customer, which might be 55 properties in nine states and, you know, 10,000 apartment units for rent, uh, we, you know, we're essentially saying, hey, look, like utilizing this best in class CRM at the end of the year, you're going to have outperformed, you know, any of your competitors or people, you know, or yourself, if you weren't using like a great CRM, because you're just not going to be as engaged or organized. And the, you know, what that looks like in the business is fewer renters, you know, paying you, you know, rent because you're, you know, slower to turn vacant units, et cetera. Oh, interesting. That's awesome. And so tell me about the early days. I read that you attended some conferences or like, how did you, how did people become aware of Knock? What was your yeah, strategy there? Um, totally. I mean, at, once we kind of, once we established some product market fit, you know, with say Seattle based customers and we realized we needed to 
expand. Um, just talking to other companies in the space, they say, okay, like you got to go to all the multifamily conferences. That's where everybody does business and gets to know each other. So we started attending and si- signing up and attending multifamily um, conferences. And like one of the funny stories uh, that you're probably referencing is we had spent like our $5,000 marketing budget and totally like blew all the budget just attending the conference um, for like a small tabletop exhibit. And there was like these huge pavilions and all, all like your kind of what you'd imagine like a big trade show pavilion. And we were kind of like the dorks in the corner with like a folding table. And um, it's like, man, on top of all these, you know, big trade show pavilions, like these big brands, like say the Zillow's and, and apartments.com in the world, like they're giving away Tesla's and they're throwing private Kelly Clarkson concerts at night. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, we decided to spend a little money on like Pedialyte and aspirin and coffee and, and oranges and vitamins. And we set up a, a hangover booth. Oh, that's our, so smart. Our uh, oh, of course, at these conferences, fine. everybody just goes and starts boozing. And of yeah, course, so everyone's that's drinking so smart. And we're like, we're like, hey, all these other companies are giving you a headache. Like, we're used to fixing headaches for property managers. We're going to do that literally. So, brilliant. You know, when they get you drunk, like, come, you know, and give you a, you know, a hangover, you come to us and we'll take care of you in the morning. And that was like a, such a hit and kind of became like our conference theme for, for a number of years. I uh, love which, it. You know, customers laughed at, but they also, you know, they, they well, they're going to remember you. The, the protocols, oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got now like up, you said about 200 employees. What's been your recruiting strategy and um, how has, I guess, the pandemic impacted that strategy um, as far as drawing in people since it's just gotten so nuts? Yeah. I mean, look, I think um, recruiting strategy, it's, you, you know, we're using so many different tools um, to try to find, you know, talent. So um, really, whether it's like professional, you know, search or, um, you know, purchasing ads and trying to get awareness out there. Um, we've been very fortunate to win like a number of best places to work awards. So we get a lot of awareness. So like, you know, we're, we see like we're filling our, our pipeline of potential candidates from all kinds of different places. But um you know, I think our, our, our most successful hires have always been people that have been, you know, references from our top performers. And um, we do a lot of incentives internally um, to try to encourage our employees to bring their friends on board. Like, we, lo- we love that. Um, someone gave me some advice one time where they were like, if your top performer introduces you to somebody and says, hey, like, you should hire this person, like, that's the person that you hire blindfolded hands tied behind your back. Like you just say yes. And you, and you say yes right away because that's going to be your next top performer. Yeah. And we have so many examples of, um, of like amazing, amazing contributors at knock, like saying, Hey, like I've got a friend who's interested in working here. And those, those are always my favorite, um, favorite offer approvals because you just know they're going to be great. Yeah, totally. And so, um, where are you as far as your growth? You've got 200 people. Where do you think you'll be in the coming year? Uh, so we're not, I mean, we're, we're probably closer to like 150 full-time and then have a number of, you know, contractors working for us um, in, in different roles. So all in probably close to 200. I don't know exactly where our headcount will, will, will end up this year. Um, probably add, you know, maybe another 30, you know, 30% kind of growth year. We've got some yeah. pretty ambitious plans from like, a product, you know, development standpoint and growth standpoint. And 
obviously people are the most important asset kind of driving that. So definitely. Yeah. Have some well, so it says good. a lot, you know, the, the best places to work, we're super proud. We've been on that list for, I think the last seven years also. Nice. And awesome. I, I put a lot of intention around that. I read that your values of determination, excellence, trust, and community are kind of your core values. Um, how have you come up with those? Are those come from the top down or is your team kind of help, um, help and help kind of contribute there? Uh, we've gone through our uh, VP of people and talent, Nicole Ossie. She's done an awesome job, like kind of working to codify a lot of the behaviors that, um, you know, have, have sort of been a, been a part of our organization for a long time organically, and then kind of coming up with, you know, the right vocab uh, to really name, you know, name those behaviors and sort of turn that into more of a values-based conversation. So we've gone through a number of like work, you know, workshops in order to really like identify our values, but, you know, they, they evolve over time. Like as your company changes, um, your goals change, the people at your Mm -hmm. company change, um, your products change. And, um, not that there's like a bad value, but, you know, values continue to evolve and improve over time. So yeah, we're pretty intent. We're pretty intentional about it though. Yeah. And how have, how's it been for you as a leader? It can be a little bit lonely knowing like, especially are you guys remote a hundred percent or are you hybrid or how's your, what's your plan during this? Uh, yeah, the pandemic. we have an office that's open and, you know, we have, you know, a, a number of, of folks that are kind of coming in on a regular basis, but most people are taking advantage of, you know, the convenience of remote being remote. Uh, last week, we actually had like our annual all hands kickoff, which was the largest internal event we have ever had. We had, you know, well over a hundred people attend and it was amazing. Like personally, I, I really miss all the human interaction uh, that's not, not via zoom. Totally. And so I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of trying to like, if I had my way, if I could just m- make wave a magic wand and have everybody come into the office every single day, like I would totally make that rule. And I would be the first guy there and the last one to leave. Cause I love it. Um, mm-hmm. but I'd have no employees cause no, no one, you know, no, everybody has, things have changed for sure. About things have what, changed. What, what matters. And so how have you, yeah shown up as a leader, I guess, leading in a hybrid model? How have you, st- how have you ensured uh, connectedness and engagement? Uh, well, like, it's not that, like, I, I don't want to say that we've got that all figured out, um, for sure. Um, but I think there's a couple of things. One, um, just like a, a steady reminder to, you know, every, everyone on the team of like over communicate to avoid miscommunicate. Um, as you can tell, I talk too much, but really try to encourage everyone on my team to um, over communicate because it's, it's easy to forget, you know, how little about the company, you know, someone new coming in and like their overall exposure is. So just got to make sure you're constantly reminding people like over communicate, over communicate. Mm. So that's a good one. And then um, like this year, you know, we've really tried to create like an op, like a, a very clear operating rhythm of like when we're getting together and why. So like my leadership team, like they get together in Seattle once a month in person. Now the other 29 days of the month, they're free to work, you know, from wherever they want, do their job. And, you know, on a quarterly basis, we're going to have all our directors, you know, come in and then some annually like uh, leadership directors and managers, and then annually have everybody together and then create budget for teams to do stuff, just intra team in person. 
I think you just got to get way better about your meetings. So like, again, you know, we're, we're like leadership team comes to Seattle once a month, directors once a quarter, you know, managers every six months, everyone together every year. So these are yeah. like precious moments when we're together and you got to make sure that you're like taking full advantage of those. I mean, they're expensive, um, but those are, those meetings become like, essentially they become your company, right? Like that, yes. like when people come together, cause the rest of it's sort of through a zoom through, you know, through their screen. So yeah. we're trying our how, best how we to just make sure that yeah. we're really like really making sure that we're doing a good job and there's great quality to the time that we get together um, as a yeah. team, because that kind of becomes the, the drip. How are you personally spending your time when you're not at work? just to kind of reboot, relax, recharge? You know, spend a lot of time. I just got married. So my, my new, my wife, she keeps me very busy with, with lots of things. Um, and don't, don't have any kids yet or anything, but have a, an awesome puppy. Uzo, I talked about him. Um, so doing a lot of stuff with him, little adventures, um, like to get in the car and just, you know, enjoy the, the access like we've got here in the Northwest and a lot of skiing and a lot of, hiking and backpacking and fishing and hunting and all that kind of good stuff. You're the, you're the quintessential like Seattle outdoorsy guy. I love it. And so what my question is like, what's your ultimate fuel? What fuels you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, just challenge, honestly, like there, there's being an entrepreneur. There's just so many, like every day there's like a new rogue wave and something you don't expect. And, um, but it's when you work through those challenges and you come out the other side of whatever that, you know, that, that challenge is or that obstacle, you know, you find that it's, that you're stronger, that you're more capable, that you're, you know, ready to take on the next thing. Yeah. And um, I think like making that, having made that connection in life and certainly, you know, as an entrepreneur that like hardships are opportunities and that's like, you know, ultimately like the, the next thing for you to grow, the next thing for you to learn from, like the next thing for you to take meaning from, like you, you can, you know, hopefully train yourself not to be like upset or angered, depressed at any time that there's like a new obstacle in front of you, but you can look at it as like, Ooh, like life has given me another opportunity to to grow. So I really, you know, for me, like, I think if you didn't take some humor and find a way to take meaning in some of the challenges and struggle, like the weight of, you know, life would just be way too hard for everybody, not just, you know, entrepreneurs. Um, and so that's, that's my fuel is just kind of seeing, seeing meaning and struggle. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.